Uh, we're going to do something a little different than the last time, but we're still kind of in um, prefatory material, but not so much as last time. Uh, we're going to set the foundation for why we need the book of Revelation and the events that come in the book of Revelation, so that when we get to some of the more drastic events, we're not surprised by their necessity. Um, so in order to do that, we're actually going to go all the way back to the first three chapters of Genesis. So we're going to take a look at biblical covenants, contracts that God makes between himself and man. And we're going to look at some hermeneutics, which is the science and art of Bible interpretation, so that we're all kind of on the same page about the process that I'm following and that we're going to follow in the class to come to our conclusions. Uh, so as a bit of a reminder, this slide we showed in the introduction for Revelation. And if you'll notice on the left in Genesis, most of the events that are being concluded in Revelation come from the first three chapters of Genesis. Creation uh, <coughs> with the first heavens and earth. In Revelation, we're going to see the new creation. In the creation event, we see an earthly priority, and that earthly priority is renewed. In the book of Revelation, sin and evil enters the world in Genesis and will be banished in Revelation. Um, so again, the curse, Adam, the garden, and man ruling, these are all circumstances which return in the book of Revelation. But in the book of Revelation, they're done in their perfect um, way with Christ ruling rather than man ruling. So let's take a look at covenant. So a covenant defined by Clarence Larkin, who is a Baptist pastor from about 100 years ago. He defines it as God's covenant with man originate with him and generally consist of a promise based on the fulfillment of certain conditions. Each one introduces a new dispensation, and we'll talk about dispensations later. But essentially, a covenant is a legal contract that God makes between himself and man, uh, oftentimes including conditions that are dependent upon man to fulfill, such as in the uh, first covenant with Adam and in the Mosaic covenant, they had conditions to fill. Others are unconditional, such as the Abrahamic covenant, in which God puts no requirements on man to fulfill that it's essentially a promise that's legally binding on God. Uh, here's my additional uh, definition of covenants. And this is the one that I've come up with to help us understand a bit more. Uh, a biblical covenant is a legal contract with binding and understandable language between God and man. So the uh, obligations that he puts on us, if it is a conditional covenant, uh, these obligations must be understandable. Um, he's not going to give us uh, consequences or requirements that we don't understand. So one of those uh, presuppositions that we will start with is that Adam understood God's commands to him. When he said, don't eat the tree, there was no confusion in that. He wasn't confused. Um, he had to choose to disobey. All right, so the covenant that we see in scripture, um, there are eight of them, 
but there are four primary covenants. Uh, the four primary covenants are the first four. Um, the first one with Adam in the Garden of Eden when he was put in a perfect state. And then the Adamic covenant, which is after the fall. Now Adam has to deal with the conditions of a new world in which sin exists. God creates a new covenant with him at that time. We'll also see the Noahic covenant, which God creates with Noah after the flood. And we'll see the Abrahamic covenant, which God creates with Abraham after the failures at Babel. All of the other covenants are directly related to the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant gives Israel possession of a land, seed, and blessing. So a land for the country to be in, a seed which is uh, progeny for Abraham that his descendants will um, continue until the end, and also uh, blessing that not only to Abraham's descendants, but the entire world through Abraham will be blessed. Mosaic covenant will guide the enjoyment of that blessing. So they are given unconditional ownership under the Abrahamic covenant, and then they're going to be given the enjoyment of it under the Mosaic covenant, much like uh, receiving the gift of a car from a parent, that would be the Abrahamic covenant. But unless you have the driver's license, which is the Mosaic Covenant, you can't drive that car. So ownership of the car is unconditional, but you can't drive it without fulfilling the conditions of the Mosaic Covenant. The Land Covenant, Davidic Covenant, and New Covenant amplify or expand upon those three promises in the Abrahamic Covenant of a land, seed, and blessing. Uh, so we're only going to take a brief look at the first four in today's session and only really drive home the first one. Um, so we're, we're not gonna have to go through all of these today. Uh, we're gonna focus on the first one. Right, so the first four, as I said, are the primary covenants. The others all have to do with the Abrahamic covenant. So um, I already went up through these in some detail. The Edenic covenant is the foundation of the earth in a perfect state. Then after the fall, a new covenant is necessary. And then after the flood, yet another, and in Babel. So we're looking at about 2,000 years of world history um, spanning these four covenants. And our goals for today, we're going to look at the interpretive method as we examine the first covenant made with Adam. We're going to do two exercises in observation uh, in the text. We're going to uh, learn some hermeneutical points. Hermeneutics is the science and art of Bible interpretation. So we're going to learn the procedure and process of doing that so that no one's confused as I'm going through and uh, uh, referring to some of these terms. And then we're going to see the importance of having a proper hermeneutic when studying scripture. So first, our interpretive method, our hermeneutic that we'll be using. Uh, I'll read this for us. We must know the meaning of the Bible before we can know its message for today. We must understand its sense for then before we can see its significance for now. In other words, we have to know what it meant to the people who originally read it in order for us to understand how we interpret it today. Uh, Without hermeneutics, the science and art of interpreting the Bible, 
we are jumping over and missing out on an indispensable step in Bible study. The first step, observation, asks, what does the Bible say? The second step, interpretation, asks the question, what does the Bible mean? The third step is application, which raises the question, how does it apply to me? So if we follow these out of order, for example, not making observations in the text, then we're likely to come to some strange interpretations uh, because we'll miss over some key things. If we start making applications before we've done any interpretation, uh, then we start to apply some odd things. For example, today we'll see that Adam was commanded to have a vegetarian diet. Uh, if we just take that right out of the text and apply it to ourselves today, we come to some odd conclusions because we take it out of context. Okay, so let's dive in. And our three observational texts we're going to look at is Genesis 1, 26 through 30. This is God's instructions to man regarding the covenant uh, that he made with him when he put him in the garden. Genesis 2, 15 through 17, which is the condition of this covenant. And Genesis 3, 12 through 13, which is the failure of man to be obedient. We're going to organize our observations and check with the commentaries to be sure that we didn't overlook any key areas. Uh, so let's see, can I have a volunteer to read the text here? I've been talking a lot. Anyone? I'll read it. Okay, Karin, can you read for us? Sure. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man his, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Okay. And then one more slide here. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and roll over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that, it is on, that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Okay, so oftentimes when we read, uh, we just read through that fast and then we move on to the next section. Um, so we're going to go back and take a look at it phrase by phrase or clause by clause and just draw out some observations. Um, when I've done this in actual seminary classes, sometimes the teachers like to make a point. They'll give us a single verse and say, make a hundred observations that are unique. And uh, it's quite taxing. We're not gonna do that, um, but we might try to find at least 10 or 12 observations per verse here. Um, so let's start with, then God said. What's God doing here? Anyone have any ideas? He's communicating to us. He's communicating, right. So we see right at the beginning that God said, and he's going to say, let us make man in our image. So that means man is not yet here. So he is talking, he is communicating, 
before man exists. So he doesn't need man in order to be communicative. He is talking and communicating with someone. We'll see that it is himself he's communicating with prior to man's existence. So we see rather than a man-centric uh, beginning to the world, we see a God-centric beginning to the world. Uh, we also see the word then, this adverb, which expresses that some events had happened prior to this. Uh, if you read through Genesis, you'll see that the first five days of creation came prior to this. This is the beginning of the sixth day of creation. So this is putting it in coordination with those previous days of uh, creation. So God says, let us make man in our image. This in the Hebrew as well is a plural pronoun, us. Um, so we see also right from the first chapter of Genesis that the Trinity is in view. And although the Jews never understood the concept of the Trinity until Christ, uh, it is present even in their scriptures. They understood him as a plural being, but not a trinity. Uh, so let us make man in our image. Um, God has an image. This isn't uh, just a concept or an idea, but an actual being. Uh, so we can understand him as distinct from us, but also us having been created in some likeness to him. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over the earth. So this is a purpose statement. What exactly is God's purpose for man um, that we can understand from this verse? What kind of responsibility is man to have? Dominion and rulership over the earth. Exactly. Rulership. And this word rule in the Hebrew is the same one as a conquering king. Uh, it's often translated as well to tread on or to walk over. Uh, so this isn't in the sense of um, stand back and look at, but to actually get involved in, make changes, uh, bend it to your use. Uh, there are a lot of interesting applications that can be drawn out of this. Um, I've got one professor, Mark Mooser. Actually, I've never had him as a professor, but he works at the school I am at. He wrote a book called Nazi Ecology, how the Nazi movement actually began in Germany um, as a, uh, what is it called? Eco-friendly uh, movement of basically don't touch the earth, but get rid of the humans who are touching the earth. And this is contrary to God's idea of what man is responsible for doing on earth. All right, so what exactly is his domain? If he has a dominion, what's the domain of that dominion? He's to rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle of the earth. Now, this isn't a comprehensive list in the way that everything here is literal. It is a form of Hebrew figurative language basically to say everything. You've got the sky, you've got the land, you've got the sea. All of this creation in front of you, uh, it's like saying top to bottom, it's all yours. Not only the top and the bottom, but everything in between. Uh, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we see specifically 
that it's over animal creation as well. So not only the domains and the dominions of these animals, but the animals themselves. And then verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God created man. We see God speaking at the beginning. We see God creating now. So God is involved intimately and actively with man. He is not a passive being as well. He is intimately involved. And he made us in his image. So another observation that could be drawn out of this is that in verse 26, God said, and in verse 27, God did. He's not waiting around either. Uh, we see him communicating to himself in the form of a first person command. So he is, in a sense, commanding himself to do, and he is obedient to himself. In this trinity, there is perfect cohesion that what is said to be done is immediately done. So God created in his image, the image of God, he created him. Um, Hebrew poetry, uh, instead of rhyming words at the end, it rhymes ideas. So you'll often see this where the same idea is repeated two times in a different way. Uh, this is Hebrew poetry and it's to an emphasis to a passage. So God created in his image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We see a pronoun switch here where it's not talking just about man, but that made specific distinction between man and woman. All right. Not to belabor that, let's move on to the next. God blessed them. So we see a third action of God. He speaks, he creates, and he blesses. And then God said to them. Once again, we have God speaking, but this time it's no longer to himself, between himself. But he is now speaking to his creation. What would be an implication of God speaking to his creation? Anyone have an idea? Creating a relationship with, with man. Relationship, exactly. Uh, he said to them, he didn't uh, create them, let them loose and walk away. Uh, he is again intimately involved with his creation. But if he's speaking to them, he also uh, is under the impression that man can understand. Being that God created him, he understands man's capabilities. So in speaking to Adam, we understand that Adam was capable of language as well. So he commanded them, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So this is a repeat, but expanded. Uh, of what God originally said in verse 126 of his intention in creating man. He now relates that intention for creation to man directly. And let's see, uh, let's count how many imperative verbs there are in this phrase. I don't mean to treat you guys like my middle school <laughs> English class, but I think it's important. Uh, We've got the verb be, be fruitful and multiply. We've got the verb fill, fill the earth, and we have subdue it, it being the earth, and rule over. 
the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing. So we have five different commands here. Most of them very closely related, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, those have very similar ideas, but it's not just multiplication, but fruitfulness in that multiplication. We have to fill the earth. Um, that is the idea of not just man uh, going and filling the earth physically, but going and filling the earth with uh, basically economy, commerce. That's not explicitly said in the text here, but it is filling the earth and using the earth. And subdue it. Again, this subdue is similar to the word for conquering king. Uh, we don't just let the earth run wild around us, but the earth is in a sense a garden. So we cultivate this earth. Uh, we don't simply observe this earth. And rule over. So here we see explicitly the idea of ruling over the fish and the sea and the birds and everything that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, that means to look. I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. Okay, so we see yet another thing that God has done. He has spoken, he has created, he has blessed, and now he has given. And he has given every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree yielding seed, yielding fruit, which has a seed, shall be given to you. So we see God has provided for man's sustenance as well. He has not uh, created an earth where uh, we're to be hungry, essentially. This earth is fruitful for us. So we are to subdue it. That has the idea of labor. So labor itself is not bad because at the end of this day, um, God will say everything was good. Uh, so the idea of work is a good thing. It's not slothful, it's not lazy, but it's good for man to be working. But we also see that man doesn't have to work to survive in this garden. His survival is provided for him. His work is simply an enjoyment and for God's glory. Uh, so he's given him every tree and all of the plants of the earth for food and every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. So not only has God provided for the sustenance of man, but he has provided for the sustenance of the creation, which man rules over. So essentially man was put into a perfect condition. He needed for nothing. He was given something to do. So he wasn't just bored twiddling his thumbs and decided to eat the fruit. Uh, he is supposed to be busy about the instructions that God gave him. And it was so. So it was so is important because uh, this shows that what God said did come to pass. So this would be then the completion or the fulfillment of God's command. And um, next, we're going to take a look at the conditions of this. But I think at this point, it, uh, it would be good to mention that most scholars don't see the fall as having been very distant from creation. Um, I've heard people say it's on the same day. 
as creation that man fell. Uh, I heard that for the first time recently. Uh, I have heard within a week or prior to the next Sunday or Saturday rather. Uh, and I've also heard within a year, but it's important to see some of these uh, commands to him is to be fruitful and multiply. We know that at the time of the fall, Adam and Eve had not yet had children, but they were still until the fall considered to have been obedient to the commands of God. So up until that moment, which they fell, they were obedient. So if they had gone years, decades, a century, having not fulfilled this command to multiply, then they would not have been faithful to that commandment. So we know that not a very long period of time passes one way or another, whether it's the same day or within even two or three years, it's a short period of time that they spent in the garden. 